Pierce, chairman of the National Alliance. The salient feature of the 20th century was the collective suicide of the white race. In 1900, we ruled the world. We ruled politically, militarily, culturally, economically, scientifically, and in every other way. No other race even came close. We ruled India and Africa directly, and China was for all practical purposes an economic colony of Europe and America. Japan was the only non-white nation of any significance which even had pretensions of autonomy. We had superior weapons, superior armed forces, superior communications, superior transportation, superior agriculture and industry, superior standards of health, superiority in every facet of science and technology. We had the best universities, really the only universities worthy of the name, the best engineers. We built things that other races couldn't even imagine. We explored. We conquered. We ruled. More important than anything else was our moral superiority. I don't mean that we were meek and inoffensive and turned to the other cheek. I mean that we were proud and self-confident. We knew who we were, and we knew that we were far, far better than anyone else, and we weren't at all embarrassed that we were better. We recognized racial differences in the same way we recognized that the sun rises in the east, and we felt not the slightest need to apologize to anyone for that. Egalitarianism was a moral and mental disease that afflicted only a few of our people despite the murderous outburst of egalitarian insanity that was the French Revolution a century earlier. Any sort of racial mixing was abhorrent to us. We looked on miscegenation with the same disgust as on bestiality or necrophilia. We didn't tolerate it, and we didn't accept or trust Jews. That was our situation a century ago. We did have some faults, however, some very serious faults. We were not vigilant. We didn't pay attention when a few warned us, hey, we'd better do something about the race problem. We have nine million non-whites in the United States, and in the future, they could become a real problem for us. Let's start getting rid of them now. We thought, well, as long as they stay on their side of town and stay out of sight, how can they be a problem for us? Besides, they're useful for picking cotton and as cleaning women and cooks and gardeners. And when a few warned us about the Jews, we also didn't pay attention. 
And you warned us about the damage the Jews had done to us in the past, about their malevolence, about their growing wealth. But most of us didn't take the warnings seriously. We saw the Jews as obnoxious and unpleasant people, and we didn't let them into our private clubs and our better hotels. But we didn't consider them really dangerous. We didn't even become alarmed when they began buying up our newspapers and elbowing their way into other propaganda media. And lack of vigilance wasn't our only fault. We were too ready to quarrel with one another. No other race was seen as a threat to ours. So we felt no need to suppress our internal rivalries and jealousies and hatreds and form a solid front against the non-white world. We let fester old rivalries between the English and the Germans, and between the Germans and the French, and between the English and the Boers in South Africa, and between those of us who spoke Germanic languages and those of us who spoke Slavic or Romance languages. We didn't notice our faults, our weaknesses, but others did. The latter half of the 19th century saw not only the beginning of the acquisition of our mass media by the Jews, but also the nearly simultaneous hatching of two long-term murderous conspiracies designed to exploit our weaknesses and turn them against us. Those two conspiracies were Zionism and Marxism, communism. Some Jews went with one, some with the other, but both were deadly for us. The Marxists issued their communist manifesto as far back as the middle of the 19th century, but it was another 50 years before they were able to have much of an impact on the Gentile world. As for the Zionists, they also began propagandizing and organizing at about the middle of the 19th century and only became noticeable at the beginning of the 20th century when they began having international Zionist congresses and more or less openly laying their plans to foment wars and revolutions of which they could take advantage to promote Jewish interests. For example, at the Zionist Congress in 1897 in Basel, Switzerland, the Zionist leader Theodore Herzl told his fellow Jews that they were having trouble persuading the Turks, who at that time controlled Palestine, to turn the country over to them, but that the Jewish leaders had plans for getting around the Turks. Herzl said, and I quote, It may be that Turkey will refuse us or will be unable to understand us. This will not discourage us. We will seek other means to accomplish our end. The Orient question is now a question of the day. Sooner or later, it will bring about a conflict among the nations. The great European war must come. With my watch in hand, do I await this terrible moment. After the great European war is ended, the peace conference will assemble. We must be ready for that time." End quote. Remember, Herzl was talking about the Jews' plans 17 years before the outbreak of the First World War. But the Jews were ready when the time came. 
1916, with the war more or less stalemated, they approached Britain's political leaders and made a deal to bring the United States into the war on the side of Britain in return for a British promise to take Palestine away from Turkey and turn it over to the Jews after the war. The British side of the deal was made public in the so-called Balfour Declaration. And the Zionists kept their end of the bargain by working through Jews close to the Democratic President of the United States, Woodrow Wilson. Wilson had won the election to his second term in the White House in 1916 by promising America's voters that he would keep the United States out of the European War. But as soon as he took office in 1917, he began scheming to get the country into the war on the side of Britain, which of course he did two months later. That cost a couple of million additional Gentile lives. But it got Palestine for the Jews. And it also prolonged the war enough for the Jews in Russia to topple the Tsar and get their communist revolution off the ground. When I said that some Jews took the Marxist route and some the Zionist route, I didn't mean that all Jews became active workers in one or the other of those movements. Most Jews remained full-time money grubbers and provided propaganda and financial support for their conspiratorial brethren, continuing to buy up mass media and to dispense capital to the Zionists or to the Communists as needed. And they didn't wait for the First World War for that. The first big Gentile bloodletting of the last century, in which they had a hand, was the Boer War in South Africa between the British and the Boers. This cruel and murderous war in which Jewish capitalists were allied with British capitalists against South Africa's Dutch and German and French farmers, the Boers, laid the foundations for Jewish control of much of Africa's mineral wealth. In 1904, the Jewish Wall Street speculator Jacob Schiff, planning ahead for a communist takeover of Russia, helped to finance the Japanese side in the Russian-Japanese War and used his influence to block loans to the Tsar's government from America. This was the same Jacob Schiff who a little more than a decade later provided the Jewish Bolshevik movement with an infusion of $25 million to finish the job in Russia. That's $25 million from capitalist Wall Street to finance the communist butchery of Gentile Russians. In 1917, $25 million was a lot of money. In any case, it bought enough bombs and bullets and communist propaganda leaflets to get the job done. Now, None of this Jewish activity was really secret. The Lemmings didn't know about it because it wasn't in the funny papers or the movies. But Jews weren't even trying to keep their sympathies or their activities secret, and observant Gentiles continued to issue warnings to anyone who would listen. But as I said a moment ago, we weren't vigilant. White Americans didn't believe that they were in any danger. 
things, such as the deal to bring America into the First World War in return for the turning of Palestine over to the Jews, were too subtle for the American mind. Europeans were more vigilant than Americans. They were more aware of the long history of Jewish scheming and predation than Americans were. For another thing, in Europe, the danger was quite a bit closer. Communist parties in a number of European countries besides Russia had taken advantage of the chaos in the wake of the war to make grabs for power. And in a few countries, Hungary for example, they had succeeded temporarily. People noticed the ethnicity of the commissars and were horrified by their behavior toward the Gentile populations. Even in insular Britain, no less a public figure than Winston Churchill spoke out clearly about the danger of Jewish communism. In a full-page feature article in the February 8, 1920 issue of London's Illustrated Sunday Herald, Churchill wrote, and I quote, This movement among the Jews is not new. From the days of Spartacus Weishaupt to those of Karl Marx, and down to Trotsky in Russia, Bela Kuhn in Hungary, Rosa Luxemburg in Germany, and Emma Goldman in the United States. This worldwide conspiracy for the overthrow of civilization and the reconstitution of society on the basis of arrested development, of envious malevolence, and impossible equality has been steadily growing. It played a definitely recognizable part in the tragedy of the French Revolution. It has been the mainspring of every subversive movement during the 19th century. And now, at last, this band of extraordinary personalities from the underworld of the great cities of Europe and America have gripped the Russian people by the hair of their heads and have become practically the undisputed masters of that enormous empire. There is no need to exaggerate the part played in the creation of Bolshevism and in the actual bringing about of the Russian Revolution by these international and for the most part atheistical Jews. It is certainly a very great one. It probably outweighs all others. With the notable exception of Lenin, the majority of the leading figures are Jews. Moreover, the principal inspiration and driving power comes from the Jewish leaders. Thus, Chicharin, a pure Russian, is eclipsed by his nominal subordinate, Litvinov. And the influence of Russians like Bukharin or Lunacharsky cannot be compared with the power of Kotsky or of Zinoviev or of Krasin or Radek, all Jews. In the Soviet institutions, the predominance of Jews is even more astonishing. And the prominent, if not indeed the principal, part in the system of terrorism applied by the Extraordinary Commission for Combating Counter-Revolution, the Cheka, has been taken by Jews and, in some notable cases, by Jewesses. The same evil prominence was obtained by Jews in the brief period of terror during which Bela Kuhn ruled in Hungary. The same phenomenon has been presented in Germany, especially in Bavaria, so far as this madness has been allowed to prey upon the temporary prostration of the German people. 
Although in all these countries there are many non-Jews every whit as bad as the worst of the Jewish revolutionaries, the part played by the latter in proportion to their numbers in the population is astonishing. End of quote. Churchill said quite a bit more in this article about the dangers of allowing Jewish communism to go unchecked. And if you really want to make a study of the background of our present mess, you should read the entire article yourself. That's the February 8, 1920 issue of the Illustrated Sunday Herald. And when you do find the article, written by one of the most prominent personalities of the last century and published in a major British newspaper, you might ask yourself why you had never heard of it before I called it to your attention. As I said, we lacked vigilance. A few people paid attention. America's pioneer automaker, Henry Ford, for example. But most white Americans were too busy with their ball games and funny papers. About the only people who really paid attention were the Germans, who resolved not to let the Jews do to them what they had done to the Russians and had tried to do to the Hungarians. So they proceeded to get Rosa Luxemburg and her pals off their backs and out of Germany. And when the Germans did that, the Jews in America began screaming bloody murder and calling for another world war to save them from the Germans. And by this time, the Jews had almost a monopoly on getting their side of the story to the American public. Well, our people had one other fault in addition to an inadequate sense of racial solidarity with other whites around the world and a lack of vigilance. We also lacked responsible leadership. What we had were politicians, skilled liars, actors, lawyers, who never asked themselves what policy is good for our people, but only how can I get elected? What policy will make me popular? And as the grip of the Jews on the mass media, on Hollywood and Madison Avenue, and therefore on the minds of the public, became more and more nearly complete throughout the last century. The question the politicians asked themselves became more and more, what must I do to please the Jews and gain their support? And so in 1933, in the same year that a German government took office with a policy of freeing the German people from the grip of the Jews, in America a government took office with a policy of doing whatever the Jews wanted done. Franklin Roosevelt surrounded himself with more Jews than any previous American president. In this regard, he was the Bill Clinton of his day. Using Roosevelt as their willing tool, the Jews pulled the same sort of bait-and-switch trick on the American people to get us into the Second World War that they had pulled using Woodrow Wilson to get us into the First World War. Just as Wilson had done 24 years earlier, Roosevelt ran for re-election in 1940 on a campaign promise to keep the United States out of the war in Europe. And while he was making that promise to the American people, he was actively scheming with his Jewish advisors and supporters to get the United States into the war as soon as he could, 
And meanwhile, to keep the war in Europe going by making promises of support to those countries opposed to Germany. It was fighting on the wrong side of that war, more than anything else, which laid us low. It also destroyed the British Empire and laid Britain low. There was a moral collapse throughout the white world. It wasn't just the German people who lost the Second World War. It was all Europeans, all white people, including Americans. The Jews were the only real winners of the war. The First World War resulted in opening up Palestine for their Zionist faction and delivering Russia to their communist faction. The Second World War not only saved them from Hitler, it delivered all of Eastern and much of Central Europe to their communist faction and finished delivering Palestine to their Zionist faction. The war cost them a million or so of the less nimble Jews in Europe, but it gave them a basis for their enormously profitable Holocaust story with which they have beaten the white world over the head ever since. Today, we have George Bush trying to outdo Bill Clinton in multiculturalizing the government of the United States. Patriotic Americans put their hope in Bush to pull America back from the insanity of the Clinton era. And the first thing Bush does is try to ingratiate himself with the Jews by appointing non-whites to the most important posts in his administration. Read the man's lips. What he's saying is, Hey, I'm really not such a bad guy. See, I'm appointing blacks. I'm appointing Jews. I'm appointing Mexicans. And the blacks and Mexicans I'm appointing are just as pro-Jewish as I am. My tough-talking black Secretary of State speaks Yiddish and will support Jewish interests around the world just as strongly as Bill Clinton's Jewish Secretary of State has done. And he's not saying that. He's not making these appointments because that's what Republicans want or even what Americans want. It's what the Jews want. George Bush is a hollow man, an empty man. And George Bush is a splendid symbol of the state of our race today. A splendid symbol of our moral collapse during the past century. It is entirely appropriate that he became our figurehead leader through the comic opera sort of process we have witnessed of the first year of this century, which certainly will be our last century if we do not make a radical change of course soon and begin regaining our moral strength.